You are listening to the Blue Mind podcast from Heckles. All will be explained, but for now... In the upper first frame, the title card is split in two halves, two lines of text, dramatic, immediate, uppercase text. The top half, in German, reads der Achtfuss. The lower, in French, reads la pierre, the octopus. A credit title appears next, and then we meet our eight-limbed protagonist. A swift flash of a glistening creature, which, on the surface, appears almost star-like, but liquid. Movement, and then identity. Or that is, movement which reveals identity. The octopus is present and unmistakable. The movement is fluid, but somehow jerky, and the quality of the film is absolute textbook 1930s style, the visual equivalent of a crackly phonograph record, with clicks and pops on the screen somehow, with a colour tint of violet, though monochrome. The next shot places us in a cave with a slithering shape at the bottom of the frame. Our octopus is beginning its journey. Cut to exterior, daytime. Our slithering friend drips off the ledge of a window, falling to who knows where. And now, interior, in a slightly more disturbing setting, featuring what we soon realise is a doll lying down, sideways on, with the creature on the doll's neck and face. It's a shot containing eerie echoes of the 1986 James Cameron film, Aliens. Even if you haven't seen it, if I was to say to you, the face-hugger scene... I'm sure your own mind's theatre will fill in the gaps. (laughs) Back to the outside world now. A V-shaped tree, with the octopus finding its way through the centre and pouring out onto the other side. This pouring motion leads seamlessly into the following scene, which, again, in a move to the slightly disturbing, features a human skull underwater. Our lead creature meets the landing point from the preceding tree leap, finding the skull and gliding effortlessly back and forth over it. The frame freezes in time and dissolves into white. A quick cinematic fade introduces us to a scene of tranquility and familiar comfort. A perfect horizon, rocks in the foreground and a mid-tide rolling slowly in a silver-toned monochrome. Even though the preceding violet-tinted journey lasted a mere 45 seconds, the relief of seeing the sea, this opening up of the world, into a much bigger frame, is pronounced and welcome. A lot can happen in three quarters of one single minute. Breaking down the first scenes of Jean Panlevé's The Octopus is a very revealing exercise. If you haven't seen the film, and believe me, no one is shaming you if this is the case. It's a short film, weighing in at only 12 minutes and 50 seconds. Black and white, though with the occasional monochrome colour tint. It's also completely silent. It's narrative voice communicated through a title card or two, in true silent film fashion. 
On the surface, it's actually quite a psychedelic experience. Scenes reminiscent of faded Italian prog rock album covers from the 70s. Close-up shots of an octopus breathing, which would not be in the least recognisable had you not seen the title card ahead of it saying simply, breathing. And that perfectly unstable frame rate that only a film made in the 1930s could deliver. This instability is almost an added vintage feature now, rather than an imperfection. It's clear that this isn't my octopus teacher here, but connections can certainly be found in that we're seeing the creature as the star of the film and being offered a front row ticket into its day-to-day life, though without the luxury of permission from the octopus itself. We'll return to this wild world shortly. I just wanted to take this opportunity here to formally introduce you to this episode of the Blue Mind podcast from Heckles in Margate. The Blue Mind podcast is your chance to indulge yourself in sonic exploration or pure relaxation time and, wherever possible, connect deeper or indeed reconnect with the ocean. As you may have heard in recent episodes, in the first scene of the podcast we feature a guest and take some time to explore their world and what moves them. We're taking a slight departure for this one though, as we visit the cinematic world of French filmmaker Jean Panlevé. You'll find out more about his filmmaking throughout the episode, but just for a quick overview, he specialised in surreal underwater filmmaking. A familiar world, sure, but Panlevé's work began around 1925, so this visual terrain was not one that was fully mapped, and styles and techniques were being formulated almost on the spot. You sometimes hear the term, quote, the Wild West of, ellipsis, unquote which would be followed by, for example, the internet, or podcasting. Basically, it's a way of saying that the realm to which you're referring is lawless, free and wild. Well, in many ways, Panavay was operating in the wild west of underwater documenting. It was new, and technology was shonky and cobbled together to make it happen. Almost steampunk in approach. But somehow, it happened. There are several accounts of Panlevé's illustrious life out there, and this is a single standalone podcast which will take several leaps and bounds over it. But hopefully this will inspire you to take your own leap, your own bound, and investigate further. Indeed, the ocean has been there for an unimaginable amount of years. Here's an example of some of the earlier moments in documented history of some of its many inhabitants and the bizarre world in which they live, love, die, and recirculate. The filmography of Jean Panlevé leaps well over the 200 mark. It's a big number, but as I say, don't feel in the least bit ignorant if you're yet to become familiar with his body of work. In some ways, it's quite an incredible situation to be in. The fact that we have so much art, culture and creation around us that we can continue to make discoveries throughout our lives, keep forging new paths and connecting all sorts of dots. I know with so much information at our fingertips, The whole fear of missing out thing is real. 
But if you reframe it and think of it as more of a joy of yet to discover, I mean, sure, it's not catchy in the slightest, but it does turn the fear of missing out thing on its head a little bit. Born on November 20th, 1902, Sean had a mere six weeks with his mother Julie before she passed. His father Paul, who never remarried, would move in with his sister and her three children. Jean would spend weekends with his maternal grandmother in Brittany, a peninsula on the west of France, and it's here where his love for the sea would develop and blossom. He'd take himself on these little exploration expeditions, searching for new and exciting specimens in the water, which he would collect and find new homes for by way of his bathtub at home. I can only imagine how grubby that bathtub was. He would make this bathtub his own makeshift film set, his own small-scale private movie studio, where he would photograph his swimming subjects with his box camera. For the gear enthusiasts among you, the Kodak Brownie, to be exact. Now, if I said the words vintage camera to you and then saw the image that formed in your mind, I'm pretty confident I could describe what you were imagining. A small black box around the sides of a regular plastic lunchbox with a central eye and two smaller ones above. It's an antique treasure for sure. It's not a stylish, streamlined or graceful creation by any means, but you can appreciate the functionality of it. Like old hand-cranked cars or propeller planes, it has a style which somehow locks it in the exact era from which it emerged. Now, let me put something to you. Tell me if you agree. We label moments in our childhood in retrospect, knowing where our interests would ultimately lead and direct us, and the magnetic pull which might inform our paths. What do you think? I can tell you in my case, I definitely remember moments in my very early years of recording audio onto cassette from the TV. I'd hold a cassette recorder close to the speaker and record the sound from the TV speaker, which would trickle into the pinhole mic on the stereo. I would later discover the pause button, allowing me to edit in just about the crudest way imaginable, but live and in the moment. In a flash of inspiration, I applied this pause button discovery to the video recorder, where the same results were achievable. These crude edits were accomplished by pausing the recording tape on the adverts, which would effectively trim them from the recording resulting in an ad-free version of the film or programme. My six-year-old mind was changed. I was an editor and I was making decisions. Maybe it was these moments, messing around with audio and loving these little micro-discoveries. Maybe they were the signals to where my interest compass might point. But maybe it sparked an enjoyment which resided elsewhere. A desire for neatness and, to take it further, maybe even control. Perhaps the real-time edit work I was doing was just me exerting a control on the live-on-air broadcasts, making me the person in the controlling room calling the shots. That power. It's true to say, as an editor, you do have pretty much ultimate control over all of the footage, and in a lot of cases, the soundtrack too. So I wonder if there's a case to be made for either or even both schools of thought in my initial proposition. Or maybe it's a case of reverse engineering, 
looking for clues from back then as to what I now find myself doing. The technology has certainly changed in however many decades that was ago, messing with that Panasonic VHS machine, but I do appreciate something about finding a neatness and order in sound. These days I know when to apply it, as there are occasions where neatness and order are exactly what you don't want, but I feel the echoes of those earlier days still rippling in the now. But let's get back to Jean. His school life was far from straightforward, which I'm sure can be said for a lot of us. He had a rebellious streak, which would see him getting involved in protests and various anarchic activities. He would routinely bunk off school and pay visits to the local zoo, cultivating his love for the wild and the creature world, which was earlier hinted at with his makeshift bathtub aquariums. His father Paul was a politician, which made for a complicated relationship with Jean and his own tendencies. But Paul remained tolerant and patient, and as such, no long-lasting resentments made too much noise between them. Paul was a mathematician previously, and unfortunately little is printed about his wife and Jean's mother, Julie-Marie Marguerite Petit de Villeneuve. It's understood that she was of wealthy upbringing, but in terms of career and interests, not much else is known. Despite Jean's trouble with school and matters of the curriculum, he passed his baccalaureate and found a place in the University of Paris, aka the Sorbonne, where you might have found Marie and Pierre Curie, Roland Barthes and Jean-Luc Godard, roaming the halls at various points in history. There, Jean studied physics, chemistry and natural science, subjects all required for medical students, before later changing to comparative anatomy and histology. By all accounts, this seemed to be a venue which really opened things up for him. It was a place where he could develop and refine his own political leanings, but also explore those photographic and cinematic seeds that he'd planted as a kid. Seeds that at this point in his life had a touch more context and grounding through his extensive study and academic successes. He founded production and distribution clubs and got deeply involved with various societies and clubs which centered around the celebration of documentary. Of the many groups Jean was involved in, it was founding the Committee for the Liberation of French Cinema, which proved the most significant. Significant for Jean personally, as it was here where he met Genevieve Amon. Genevieve's name is featured proudly on almost all of Jean's film works. Again, as with Jean's mother, there isn't a huge amount to be found about her. My immediate reaction to the dart of information is that it's a huge shame we don't know more about her. Now I could be wildly inaccurate here, but this reaction is partly based on what I imagine to be a sexism or chauvinism that could have existed at the time, with the role of non-males to be somewhat diminished or ignored. Again this could be inaccurate, and again, this is an immediate reaction which isn't grounded in documented evidence, I should say. But this leads me on to another thought. Maybe Genevieve Amon simply didn't want attention from the press or the public. It's true you don't find many articles or features on her from the time, but this doesn't necessarily mean she was ignored. Perhaps she designed it that way, which holds an immense amount of power in itself. I think most of what I'm grappling with here is that I find it frustrating to not be able to find out more about her, at a time when we take it for granted how easy it is to bring up somebody's life story in a few clicks. 
I can tell you that she was a frequent collaborator of Jean's, as well as romantic partner. On page 11 of James Leo Cahill's book, Zoological Surrealism, the non-human cinema of Jean Panlevé, there's a black and white photo of the two of them, taken in 1935, standing in a lake, holding fishing nets, looking for specimens. The photo is fascinating to me for one main reason, how, I guess the word could be, recent they both look. From a simple aesthetic viewpoint, going on appearance only, the two of them look like they could be standing in a local lake last year. They appear relaxed, though intent on the task in hand. And to put this modern shine on the photo even more, I might even use the word present. You can imagine them in the labs working on their films in deep collaborative concentration. Her role in the work the two of them created was initially presented as principal scientific coordinator, but gradually became more involved and enmeshed. On the subject of photos, there's a chance you might have seen one of the more popular images of Jean Panlevé. On the cover of a retrospective collection called Science is Fiction, released by the British Film Institute, the BFI, standing behind a large, swirling, cursive yellow font is Jean. The image is iconic and represents so perfectly what he was all about. Wearing little more than a bathing suit, his face is masked with a snorkel, with an oxygen cylinder strapped to his hip. More prominently, though, is the huge box attached to his front. Wearing this box like a snare drum in a marching band, it protrudes out from his stomach like a bizarre angular boxy limb, almost like his body has grown a huge version of that old camera he used as a kid. It does look very cool though. It's a jarring image, but he looks very at ease in this odd position. It also provokes more questions too, like how does that thing work? And how does it operate underwater? All of these are valid questions. Personally, I couldn't answer them merely speculate using context clues and intuition, but it certainly adds an attractive mystery to the whole process. But this image leaves you with no room for doubt as to what Pan LeVay is all about. So at this point in the podcast, we're going to just take a few minutes to come up for air in the thought break section. The thought break is the space in the Blue Mind podcast where we replace an ad break with the space to collect thoughts, check in with ourselves and our bodies, and give some time to let all that we've just heard sink in or wash over us while ambient sounds flow in the background. Now, there's nothing you need to do at this point other than let the sounds happen. No need to suddenly and reflexively tap the fast forward or skip button, unless you want to, of course. And I'll bring you back in in a couple of minutes. I'll see you soon.
welcome back in. The films of John Panovay cover about six decades. In this span of time, we see a lot of changes in developments. We move from black and white to colour, from silent to fully scored with avant-garde electronic music, from gritty film to cinematic scope. From the beginning, though, there has always been the eye for detail. Not just in terms of creative process, but in terms of the subjects, the microscopic. I went into detail about the opening frames of The Octopus. The very first frame is almost impossible to make sense of. It's filmed so close that the form and makeup is so abstract. You just see the light reflecting of what is clearly a living creature. But what? There is a meeting point where zoological study and radical filmmaking ideas find common ground and become their own thing. Panlevay was engaging in what became known as neo-zoology or zoological surrealism. It's interesting to look back at it now, these films that were made up to a hundred years ago, and how ahead of their time they were. It's like the advancements John Panlevay and Genevieve Amon were experimenting with pushed them outside of the time from which they came. Perhaps it's the overall generic look of old-timey cinema that we're so used to that really brings out the drastic difference in their works. But you get a real sense of strangeness in these underwater worlds that they were filming. There's one immediate example which springs to mind, where you can really see this as a broader example of what I'm getting at. It's not filmed exclusively in the underwater realm, but has a good amount of seahorse footage in there, a subject featured on frequent occasions in the Panlevay catalogue, and certainly much of the character and flair of the rest of the filmography. The main subject in the case of The Vampire, made in 1945, is a vampire bat featuring the groundbreaking close-ups and seemingly microscopic filming techniques that beg the question, how the hell did they do that? It's also very jarring and actually rather disturbing, even by modern standards. To begin with, we see what look like dangerous cells and ticks with dramatic cutting between all kinds of underwater life forms, swimming, eating, moving in patterns. In what feels like an early mixtape or collage approach, the footage cuts to the film Nosferatu from 1922, where Graf Orlok, played by Max Schreck, basically playing Dracula but with a different name due to copyright reasons, enters a room to go about his blood-sucking evil doings. We then cut to sweeping shots of a large world map, which appears to detail a long journey of some kind. The shot that follows might give a clue as to whose voyage we might have just seen. It's a mini vampire bat with a little face that comes with an almost cartoon villain look fixed grin, large ears and definite resonances with Nosferatu. The short film plays out with this bat slowly attacking a rabbit, which isn't the nicest scene so I think I'll leave the rest of the play-by-play analysis there for now. I did say that it was all a little disturbing. Oh, and bear in mind that throughout this film there have been two pieces by jazz musician Duke Ellington playing back-to-back, Black and Tan Fantasy and Echoes of the Jungle, with an urgent French voiceover on top. This might also be responsible for the sense of disturbance and abstract association in the filmmaking. It's a wild juxtaposition to take in. Certainly this film was not for everyone, and looking at it now some 70 plus years later, it's not that hard to see what an impact this film might have had in its time. It's fairly abrupt, 
is very lean, without any excess parts that could have been trimmed off, and comes across as unapologetic. And this is something that I found in a lot of the catalogue. Not that there's an apologetic way of making films, but I mean that the delivery isn't subtle. It's loud, stark, quick. I used the term urgent earlier, that too, and doesn't glide over the subjects and subject matter with grace. The films are carefully made, but also come with a scrappiness that, to retrofit a completely anachronistic term to the work, is quite punky in spirit. You could even say profi. Professional films, but made without the pomp and seriousness that a huge film studio might have sprinkled over it. It leaves you with an impression and doesn't dissolve or retreat into the shadows, shy and bashful. I'm going to divert you for a second just to throw some of the titles of his films at you. I mentioned that there were around 200, so fear not, this won't be a breathless list of film titles. It's more just to reiterate how in the sea he really was. I referred to his vampire bat film just now, which contained hints of underwater life, but in case I've sold the sea foundations of his work short in any way, here's a quick rundown of just some of his filmography. The Octopus, The Sea Urchins, The Hermit Crab, Crabs and Shrimps, Skeleton Shrimps and Spider Crabs. Okay, there's a theme developing here, or at least a trilogy. The Seahorse. Freshwater Assassins. How Some Jellyfish Are Born. The Love Life of the Octopus. I believe that one is in fact safe for the whole family. And Sea Ballerinas. Just a handful there, but this gives you a flavour of the essence of all that work. It occasionally ventured outside of the watery depths, but the true north was definitely based in the sea. There's a revealing and very layered quote from Panlevay in an interview from 1986, where he mentioned, quote, I respect scientists who say from time to time, science rose across the lake of ignorance as it moves away from the shores. Science is a fiction. To make science fiction is downright useless, unquote. This is where the Criterion Collection of his work gets its title, Science is Fiction. I mentioned about it being a layered quote. I think by this I mean that it can have a number of interpretations and possibly even be understood in different ways through time. But to me, this gets at the imagination and cross-pollination of sci-fi and avant-garde filmmaking in the work he and his partner would create. It hints at the murky world of science as it goes from what we know to what we don't and the otherworldly aspects of it all. It's a quote which for me says, basically... We live in a world of infinite discovery, fascination and wonder, and we are in it right now. Personally, sure, I understand the urge to explore the universe and see what's out there. It's a mission which will never end and there's something very enticing about that. The endless quest for discovery, especially how it relates to us as humans. Of course that urge and inspiration will live in people. But we do also live in a very largely unexplored world. And yes, there are parts of it we'll never get to see. But so much of this world we have available to us right now is full of some of the strangest, unlikely, curious, random things you could imagine. 
behaviours of creatures and insects and amphibians and so on, the dances that bees do to give directions to other bees, the already discussed private life of the octopus, even the love life of the octopus. There is almost too much to take in, too many options and too much to document. Add to that the fact that these curious creatures and natural phenomenons have behaviours and facets that we as humans won't ever truly understand. We can observe and make deductions and draw conclusions, but how could we possibly ever know what it feels like to be a shark gliding through the depths of the ocean? And maybe that's why we still have documentaries being made about them. We'll never know everything, and we'll keep discovering more and more. This isn't a reason to stop looking out to space, or to stop being curious and intrigued about what else is out there. We don't have to pick one or the other. I remember as a kid being so drawn to the idea of the infinite sky, but also the impossibly deep sea, and thinking even then about how I would never see all of it. I think what I'm saying is, we share the world with countless strange and wonderful creatures, animals, life forms, and while we may not be able to naturally swim as deep as them, or hold our breath for long periods of time, we do have technology and equipment that is constantly evolving, giving us permission to see more and more of this shared world. Compare the camera that Pandave is holding in that iconic photograph, the camera that looks like a luggage trunk extending from his torso, with the camera of previous guest of the Blue Mind podcast, Inca Creswell's Ultra HD underwater gear, or other previous guest Nadia Huggins' underwater camera, which, while it's not ultra high-end material, still captures incredible up-close underwater imagery. The developments in portable tech over the last century are epic and continually unfolding in front of us. As for ideas and imagination, well, that's down to us and where we let our minds roam. Jean Panlevé and Genevieve Amon were making some really genuinely radical underwater and neo-zoological films in the early days of cinematography. And I really hope there's a sense and a feeling of this inventiveness and radical rule-breaking still happening out there in the nature-documenting world. I'm sure it is, but I understand that there is a time and a place for it. I mean, you couldn't just throw Duke Ellington or Pierre Henri underneath David Attenborough and expect the same results. But nature is so wild and predictably unpredictable, so why can't we be when we respond to it? You can find the work of Jean Panlevé on various DVD and Blu-ray collections, but I would highly recommend the collection Science is Fiction. There are two different versions I've seen, one with him holding that huge camera on the front cover, and one with an X-ray seahorse on the cover, but I believe the former is the easier to get hold of. You can also find a lot of his films on the streaming service Mubi, which are available in certain countries. So keep an eye out for those if you have access to Mubi and are moving around the globe, physically or digitally. You can also find the Yola Tango album, The Sounds of Science, as an accompanying disc to science's fiction, or as a standalone album. Yola Tango are a gorgeous band from Hoboken, New Jersey, who have been around for decades. And if you don't know them, this could be an odd starting point. So I would personally suggest the album and nothing turned itself inside out to begin with and then see how you get on. Sounds of Science is a really interesting and bugged out album though. A really curious and cool item in their back catalogue. May your journey of viewing and listening be a fascinating and fulfilling one. And I hope you find a whole world of cinematic interest out there with all of this. 
There are so many incredible documentaries and pieces of work being made currently, but it's very special to go back in time and see what was happening all those years ago. Here's to the past and the future simultaneously. The Blue Mind podcast was written, produced, arranged and scored by me, Buddy Peace. Blue Mind is the name of an excellent book by Wallace J. Nichols, which is essential reading for anyone with an interest of all things sea-related. Thank you so much to Wallace for spiritual inspiration for this podcast. The Blue Mind podcast is produced for Heckles, who you can find online at heckles.co.uk and that is spelt H-A-E-C-K-E-L-S or physically at two locations, 18 Cliff Terrace, Margate, which you'll find up near the old Lido, and 16 Broadway Market in London. I also strongly recommend you sign up for the Heckles Weekly Mailout, which you'll find online on the website. You can follow Heckles on Instagram over on at Heckles for product updates, ocean-based positivity and innovations from all over the world. There are regular posts and stories on there, so it's almost like a constantly evolving blog of sorts. Loads for you to get lost in. We're also on Spotify, where I compile weekly playlists. Just do a quick search for Hakels on Spotify. You'll find us. The playlists are around an hour or more of blissful sonics and beautiful music from all around the world, compiled and selected by hand without any algorithm assistance. Each week is unique and is like an escape button if you need it. Most importantly of all, though, I would like to thank you for listening and for being a part of this podcast. As a listener, you are what makes this thing come alive. And if you're enjoying it, an incredible gesture of support would be to recommend it and share it with a friend or anyone you feel would get something from it. It's a thrill that you're here and listening to the end. Thank you. Let's catch up soon. <laughs>